always the um, introduction matters that need to be taken care of, and I've given you some of that on your handout on the back. Uh, those are for you to kind of put in your Bible later on to refer to, but we're going to look at some of those today. Uh, if you're noticing there, uh, the author is, well, you're going, well, it's First Peter, right? Well, yes, that's First Peter, but there's some internal evidence there. Verse 1 tells us explicitly that that's the case, that Peter's the writer. And why would I bring these things up to you? Well, there's a lot of people, liberals in particular, discredit as much as they can who the authors of the Bible are. Uh, and why would they do that? If they can discredit who the author is, then obviously the Bible's not true. And so, But the, the author's First Peter... Excuse me. The author of 1 Peter is Peter. Not that there's a first and second Peter. There's just one Peter. And so uh, in chapter 5, verse 1, Peter claims to have been an eyewitness to the sufferings of Christ. So there's some internal evidence there. Most of us are familiar with Peter. He's a fisherman from an area around the Sea of Galilee. His name means rock. And that name was given to him by who? Jesus. Jesus gave him that name. And if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Peter's name is listed. And when they list the disciples, his name appears where? First, in the Gospels. Not that he's more prominent than the other ones. Maybe because Peter was loud and always talking that he remembers him first. I'm just kidding. So, he's one of the disciples, one of the original disciples. If you'll notice there, the audience that um, Peter is writing to is in the area of Asia Minor. If you're looking on the map, look for Turkey. Modern day Turkey on the map. And that's where you, that's where that's would have taken place. Uh, these churches in this area are composed of Gentiles primarily, but there's also Jews scattered into these congregations. Peter refers to these believers as exiles, and some translations say aliens and strangers. He does so because of their faith in Jesus, which means their home is not here on earth, but it's in heaven. That's the idea behind that exile. They're not physically exiled to another country and I'll talk about that more in just a moment. The situation, why Peter writes this letter, these believers were experiencing various kinds of trials that led to suffering. Suffering which led them to be persecuted for their faith. So Peter's writing to encourage believers as they're suffering for the cause of Christ. And You notice on your handout that I gave you the goal. So Peter's purpose, his goal for writing is to encourage believers according to chapter 5, verse 12, to stand firm in the true grace of God. That's his goal. That's his theme. He's trying to get believers. He's encouraging them to stand true in the faith. And he'll point that out as we go through First Peter. You're going to see some more underlying themes appear under that. And one of those is going to be holy living. He's going to call believers to live holy while they suffer. He's going to call believers to submit to authority. And you're like, oh, that's going to come up. Yes, we don't like that submitting to authority. And then there's going to be the idea of endurance and suffering. Uh, you and I don't like enduring things, but Peter is going to encourage us with the gospel to do that. There's also in First Peter a theme of believers, um, kind of the terminology that some people use, and some of your translations use these words as pilgrim sojourners, which means temporary residents. He's going to bring that up time and time again. The idea is that as believers, our time on earth is what? Temporary. And Peter will point out that when believers live with that attitude that this world is not our home and it's temporary, that gives evidence that we're placing our hope in God rather than the joys and comforts of this world. That gives evidence to others of where our hope is at. Another way to look at this idea is to say that those who hope and trust in God and, and the future reward that's promised us, when we focus on that, when we dwell upon that, 
we'll have the strength to endure whatever comes our way in this life. Remember the term I use quite often, preaching the gospel to ourselves. That's what Peter is going to encourage us, not in those words, but we're always to be preaching, reminding ourselves of who we are and what our future holds. So the theme of 1 Peter, if you look in your handout there, is standing firm in the true grace of God. That's going to be the overall theme. In other words, those who persevere in faith while they're suffering persecution for their faith should be full of hope. And you're like, really? I'm suffering persecution for my faith. Maybe, And this principle also applies not just to suffering in our faith, but suffering what? Just the, the idea of living in a fallen world, our, our, our health, and just all the things that can go on. These same principles can apply to the believer. To persevere in our faith while we're suffering uh, should be, we should be full of hope and should be without doubt because there's a time coming when our salvation will come to uh, a consummation, it will come to a, a fullness, and uh, we have that to look forward to. So that's the idea that Peter is giving us there. So those are some introductory matters. I got them out of the way pretty quick, and you're grateful that I did that, I'm sure. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let's pray for His help as we study His Word. Father, we come and we thank You for... Uh, the reminder that we have in Your Word from First Peter of what it means to stand firm in the true grace of God as we live in this world as Your people. Help us as we study to be reminded, to understand that this world is not our home. And praise be to God for that. That uh, we have something to look forward to as people who have put their faith in Jesus, those who have turned from sin and trusted in Christ. Uh, there is a new heaven and a new earth coming one day. And we live our lives now with that hope. And may that affect us, God, today. We are people who forget who we are. We forget where we're going. We forget what our future holds. And we have a tendency to hold on to everything here. And that directs our hearts and our focus. And First Peter, your word is going to help us to understand how to live in this world as Christians when suffering comes. So help us, I pray, as we study. We need your grace. We need your help. Uh, God, and it's Fallen men and women, boys and girls, even though we've trusted in Christ, we still have problems trusting and believing in Your Word. So God, I pray You'll help us as we study to be reminded of who You are. You're the God who is trustworthy and true. And it's in Your name we pray these things. Amen. If you're looking at your handout there, the main idea of what we're going to look at in verses 1-2 through two is uh, Christian identity in a hostile world. Your identity, as you live in this hostile world, as a believer, Peter's going to show that to us in these first two verses. So there's going to be one point to this. You're like, really? Just one point? Yep, there's going to be one point. It's remembering who you are. That should be pretty simple for us. Remember who you are. Look what Peter says there. He says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethania. Notice Peter indicates that he is an apostle. Uh, What is an apostle? That's a question that kind of comes up. What is that? An apostle is one who is sent out. It means messenger. So, but I want to clarify something here to help you understand. We live in a day and time, and I've heard this a lot of my Christian life, people referring to themselves as apostles. And, And so, here's what I want you to understand. In order to be an apostle, there's two biblical principles that must be in place in order for you to be an apostle. One is that you must have seen the risen Christ. How many of you here have seen the risen Jesus? 
That's what I thought. The second principle that has to be in place is you must have received a commission from the risen Jesus. How many of you have ever received a commission from the risen Jesus? So, based on those two principles, there are no apostles in the church today. If you've seen Jesus, we need to talk uh, after church today. Uh, it may have been bad pizza, it may have been something you had, but uh, you know, you've not seen the risen Christ, so therefore you're not an apostle. So he says, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, and meaning that he's commissioned by Jesus, which means he's acting on the authority of Jesus. That's important for us to understand. For that reason, Peter writes in the authority of Jesus, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means this has authority for us today. This is not some letter that's archaic and ancient and out of date. This is for us. You profess to be a believer. Peter, inspired by the Spirit of God, is writing under the authority of God. So this is relevant for us today. This applies to us today. This is not a Dear Abby response. It's not good advice. In fact, it's more than good advice. This has authority for our life. Therefore, we must believe it and we must obey it. To disbelieve or disobey the Bible is what, church? To disbelieve and disobey God. Look at verse 1 again. Here we have the audience Peter's writing to, to those who are elect exiles. Some of your translations use the word strangers or pilgrims or temporary residents. Notice of the dispersion. Some translations use the word scattered in place of dispersion there. The idea behind these exiles, and we alluded to this a little bit earlier, is that they're scattered. Uh, exiles means to be out of place. That's what that word means. If you go back to the Old Testament, the children of Israel were put into exile, which means they went from where? The promised land to a land they didn't belong. They were outside. They were in a place that they didn't belong. But Peter uses this term in a spiritual sense and not a physical sense. In other words, the idea is that of Christians living away from their true home. Heaven, which is in contrast to living here, which I said earlier is what? Temporary. So Peter's pointing this out. Listen, I'm reminding you of who you are. As believers in Christ, this world is what? It's not your home. Heaven is your home. You are to be looking forward to that. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, a good verse for us to reference. Paul says, therefore, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we await eagerly for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So all through the New Testament, we're told, we're reminded over and over again, this world is not our home. And as I said earlier, we ought to be praising God that that is the case, that this world is not our home. And notice that these believers here, they live in these places that are named off Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are, again, regions in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And most likely this letter was written, and these are in the order in which if you were going to take a journey through this part of the world, these were the cities that you would go through and in the order in which you would go. That's the way the route was set up. So this letter is written, and it's going to these believers in these different locations. And as I said, they were congregations, both Jew and Gentile. So Peter's writing to Christians who are suffering, to whatever degree that may be. And he's reminding them, here is who you are. Stand firm in the grace of God. Hope is found in the salvation that you know in Jesus. That's where your hope is at. Now, suffering people, and particularly Christians, are forgetful, right? The Bible refers to us as what? Sheep, because we are dumb and we forget things. Sometimes your pain and whatever you're going through can be so large that it causes you to have what? 
identity amnesia. That's what's going on with these believers. That's you and I sometimes. Things can be going on in our life and we kind of forget who we are, right? We get so focused on what's going on. You just forget who you are. We all do that. So Peter starts by reminding these believers who they are as they go through this persecution. He's reminding them of who they are as children of God. Now with that said, look at verse 2. These suffering strangers, these pilgrims, these temporary residents, notice what he's saying. Now listen, he's reminding them of who they are, right? He says they are elect. Some translations use the word chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Again, I want to remind you one more time, maybe again somewhere during the course of the sermon, Peter is writing for what purpose? To do what? To encourage believers who are suffering persecution for their faith. To give hope to believers as they face hard times. Don't forget that. That's why he's writing. Peter says to these believers, and listen carefully, all believers... Everywhere and at all times. Nobody's left out. This is for us today. You are elect. You are, you are chosen. Your salvation all began with who? God. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In verse 2 of 1 Peter here, Peter wants us to know from the beginning, he's reminding believers who are suffering, he wants them to know from the beginning that our relationship with God does not depend on our weak grasp of Him, but rather God's sure grip on us. That's what he's reminding them of. It's not you. It's not your feebleness that you, you, you're holding on to God, but it's God's sure grip on you. Your salvation is not your doing. It's, it's God's doing. Now notice what he says next there in verse 2. And Before I start here, I, I want to um, uh, go ahead and say that we're going to deal with a subject matter here. Some of you already heard a couple of words that kind of make your, you're like a doven pincher. Your ears have already stood straight up. You've heard those words and these are words that cause a great deal of angst and, uh, within believers, within the church. But I'm going to walk through this. I'm going to explain to you both sides of what this is. This idea of election and foreknowledge. But I'm also going to give you some warnings when I get done as how we're to respond to one another when it comes to this subject. Okay? Notice he says there in verse 2, All believers everywhere and at all times, they are elect. They're chosen. And the choosing was what? According to. You see those two words? According to. That means the source. You were elect. You were chosen by God according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father. Now I'm going to... I think election and choosing is... That's kind of simple. Elect. You choose something. You what? You decide. You choose. But the word foreknowledge is the one that kind of gets sticky. Kind of gets a little... Foggy for us. Foreknowledge, I'm going to explain the, the definition of that word. It has more than one meaning. It's kind of nuanced in different ways. But all those come together in this one word. Foreknowledge refers to God knowing beforehand of all the events that would take place in history. God is sovereign. He knows everything that's going to happen. Past, present, 
future. God does not wake up one day and go, wow, where did that come from? He knew it was coming. As a matter of fact, He ordained it to come. Now, don't ask me to explain why bad things happen. God knows they're coming. He allows them to happen. I can't explain that. The Bible doesn't explain that for us. It also means that God foreknows people, not just facts and events. Foreknowledge also means to predetermine something. Foreknowledge also means to set, to establish one's love upon a person in a personal way. Overwhelmingly, that's what that word means the majority of the time in the Old Testament. To set one's love upon a person in a personal way. Foreknowledge means that this is not just simple insight. That somebody went to God and said, hey God, are you aware of this? Oh, I am now. Thank you. That's not what that's talking about. It also includes the idea that God thought of us as those whom He intended to bring into a personal saving relationship with Him. Now, Amos chapter 3, verse 2 of the Old Testament. Listen to what this verse says. This is God speaking to the children of Israel. And here's what He says to them. Now, before I get there, how do we commonly refer to the nation of Israel, the people of God? They are the people of God, they are, what's the word we use sometimes when we refer to them? They are the chosen people of God. We have no problem using that when we're talking about Israel. That's correct. Because in Amos chapter 3 verse 2, here's what God says. He's talking to Israel and He says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. What did He say? You only have I known, have I set my love upon of all the peoples of the earth. Does that make sense? How many people in the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, that God set His love upon? One people. His people. The ones that He chose. Now what does Amos 3.2 say to us? It says that God set His love on the nation of Israel. God chose them. They did not choose Him. Acts 2 verse 23. Write this verse down and listen as I read it. Listen. This is talking about Jesus. It says in Acts 2.23, This Jesus was delivered up according to... What does according to mean? The source. Jesus was delivered up. What's delivered up referring to? The death of Jesus on the cross, right? He's dying for sinners. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 2.23 tells us that God the Father knew His plan for the death of Jesus before the foundation of the world. He knew that. He set that in place. No one reminded Him, God, do you have a plan to save the world? He knew that. Look at 1 Peter, where we're at in chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 20. It's talking about Jesus again. It says, He, being Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. 1 Peter 1, verse 20 tells us that it was God's foreknowledge from an eternity past that He would send His Son to redeem sinners. This does not mean that God looked into the future and He saw that Jesus would choose to die, so He made Jesus the Savior. That's not what's going on. He ordained that. He decreed that that would happen. Now, I'm going to explain this idea of election and foreknowledge. I'm going to give you both sides. Now listen to me carefully as your pastor. My goal is not to persuade anybody to believe in one particular camp. 
Do you hear what I said? Don't leave here today and say, the pastor said we had to believe this way or we were wrong. I'm telling you the way that it's presented in the camps people fall into, and I'm not persuading you one way or the other. I think it's a pass over to tell you what the different views are and let you study that and figure that out for yourselves. And I'll talk more about that. There's one position when it comes to this election and foreknowledge that's called conditional election. In other words, here's what that means. God, He elects, He chooses based on the foreseen condition of someone's faith. You might say a person is chosen because God knew they would select Him. In other words, God looks down through the corridors of time and He sees you say, yes, I'll choose Jesus. And because you choose Jesus, God chooses you. That's unconditional. That's conditional election. There's a condition. God will choose you if you what? Choose Him. Now that would raise the question, who or what made us choose Jesus? And would take our salvation completely out of God's hands and put it in whose hands? Our hands. The other side of that is, is unconditional election. And it simply means that before the world began, God chose people to be saved, not because He saw anything good in them, but solely on the basis of His gracious choice. Romans chapter 9. Read that chapter for further study. In this line of thought, God did not choose because He knew you would choose Christ. He chose you to receive salvation, and because of that, you trusted Christ. That's what that count, unconditional election means. So, you may be asking yourselves, which one's correct? First, let me say this. Listen to me carefully. If you're thinking about taking a nap, you need to wake up here. Listen to me carefully. This doctrine is not one that should cause us to act mean-spirited toward one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That is biblically unacceptable. We're not to act mean-spirited toward one another because of this doctrine. That is not acceptable according to the Bible. Nor should it be an issue over which we break fellowship. That is unacceptable biblically as well. This is a subject matter where we can agree to disagree on. Right? Some of you are going, no, I'm not there. But, here's what else I want to point out. The word election is in the Bible, right? And you can't pull a Thomas Paine, which I think I have that right. Thomas Paine took the Bible and he took one of those little, uh, what do you call them? Somebody, did somebody say it? One of those little sharp things like you cut with. I'm sorry. Kind of hold it like a pencil and it's real sharp and you can, what? Zacto knife. I don't know whether that's what they called it, but he cut out the part. He cut out the parts of the Bible that he didn't like. Kind of sounds like us sometimes, right? I wish that really weren't in that word is in the Bible. Therefore, it must mean something to God. It must matter to God. Therefore, it must matter to us. So here's what I would say: We need to make a commitment to study this further in Scripture, right? And if we study the Bible more, who wins? We all win, right? So, you're going to leave here today, and you're going to say, I don't know which one of those, I know which one I believe, but I'm not going to be mean-spirited toward others who believe differently from me. Now, if, you leave, if you're one of those who doesn't believe the Bible's true, or that Jesus is coming back, or Jesus is the only way to heaven, then we've got issues, right? This is not an issue for us to be divided over. Now, before you might get a little upset, notice something else in verse 2. 
This, we have a tendency to stop and we don't continue. Notice what he says. Elect a chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. Here's what I want you to understand. Salvation includes more than God electing or choosing. It also includes the work of what? The Holy Spirit in convicting the sinner and bringing him to faith in Jesus. That has to happen. Write this down. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. And listen as I read these. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification. That word means setting apart. Through sanctification by the Spirit. What does that verse say? God chose, but He also did what? There had to be a setting apart by the Holy Spirit in order for that to be carried out. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief. What's belief mean? Another word in the Bible. Faith. And belief in the truth, the gospel. So, God not only chose, but there also had to be what in order for you to fulfill that ordination of God of being chosen. You had to what? Be sanctified by the Spirit of God and you had to what? Believe. Verse 14, to this, the salvation, He called you through our gospel. Paul didn't have a personal gospel. It's just his way of saying the gospel we proclaim to you, which is God's gospel. In order to be fulfilled the choosing of God, you had to what? Hear the gospel Holy Spirit, move in your heart and you believe the gospel. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says, So faith comes by hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. You cannot be fulfilled as one who might be chosen of God until you what? Hear the gospel. The Spirit moves in your heart, sets you apart, and you believe. That has to happen. It can't happen any other way. Next in verse 2, Peter says that we are... Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God and the work of the Holy Spirit unto what? Obedience and sprinkling with the blood of Jesus. Obedience here refers to the believer's acceptance of the gospel, that initial acceptance of the gospel. In other words, obedience is describing your faith. You hear, you obey, you believe. And faith comes how, church? By hearing. Hearing and hearing through the gospel, the word. So God not only chose, but He ordained the means, the sanctification of the Spirit, hearing the Word of God, you believing, you obeying. Those things have to happen. It cannot not happen. Sorry for the double negative, but that's the way it is. Let me explain this to you from my own personal life. As far as God's concerned, I was saved when He chose me in Jesus before the foundation of the world. Let me back up. Did you notice in reading these verses there's something shows up here that we miss sometimes? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity's here. So it took the Trinity to save us. God, as far as God's concerned, I was saved when He chose me before the foundation of the world. As far as Jesus is concerned, I was saved when He died for me on the cross. And as far as the Holy Spirit's concerned, I was saved on November the 12th, 1987, when I heard the gospel and I woke up the next morning and I fell in the floor in my bathroom and I prayed to receive Christ. See, it took all three of them to save me. 
The same God who ordains the ends of our salvation also ordains the means to that end. The preaching of the gospel of the grace of God. Notice that one very important phrase, again, not more important than others, but the phrase sprinkling with His blood, Jesus' blood. What do you think that's referring to? The shed blood of Christ on the cross. It had to happen. The phrase sprinkling with His blood refers to Jesus' work of cleansing and forgiveness. Your salvation is according to the foreknowledge of God, but your salvation requires what? The blood and the death of Jesus. It requires your obedience, your repentance and trust in Jesus. You were chosen and set apart for obedience. That is who you are. That's what Peter is saying. You are God's. You belong to Him. If you have heard the gospel, believed in Jesus, turned from your sin, you belong to God. That is who you are. And because He chose you, you can't be unchosen. You cannot lose your salvation. Now what does this idea mean for us? For the believer, it reminds him as he lives in a fallen world with suffering that his status, not because he's worthy or noble, but because God bestowed His grace upon him. He can have encouragement and hope to live in a world of suffering and persecution. Because if God chose, then here's what we're about to learn because of that. Verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Remember what he's just said. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter is simply praying and asking God to fill believers with His grace and with His peace. May the grace that you know in the gospel be multiplied to you, which will bring you what? An abundance of peace. What are these people doing? They're suffering for their faith. And Peter's reminding them of who they are. And he's praying to God, may the peace of God, may His grace be multiplied in your life. So if you're looking at your handout, here's the application. And I'm going to read what you've got. Believer, you're sitting here this morning, you've trusted in Jesus. You've turned from your sin and you're putting your faith in Christ. Believer, you can submit the whole of your life to God because He is sovereign in saving and keeping His own. And we're going to see that more next week. But because God is sovereign in the salvation of your life and your soul, He's also sovereign in what? Keeping you. That you cannot fall away. You belong to God. You cannot fall away. And we, we studied in 1 John, right, about those who walk away. And what did John say about them? They were never really of the faith to begin with, or they would not have walked away. Let me flesh this application out a little bit more. When you think of God's foreknowledge, you cannot limit that just to your salvation. Okay? That's how Peter's going to give hope to those who are suffering. God's foreknowledge covers the whole of your life. The foreknowledge of God is something bigger than just your salvation. It's your entire life as a child of God. Let that sink in. Everything in your life is under the sovereign control of of God. Everything you face, you can say to yourself, my Father knows this. Every place I'm in, my Father knows the location. My Father knows the situation. My Father knows the circumstance. My Father knows what's going on with me, right? This is yes. 
Think about it. You will never, as a Christian, step out of the realm of the knowledge of the Heavenly Father. It cannot happen. Your Father knows. And the things that are troubling you, and the things that are uncertain to you, and things that are hard to understand, God knows them. And He's working out something in your life through those situations. You need to know that your Father knows. Not, listen carefully, because that that will immediately make life make sense to you, okay? But because life won't make sense if that's not the case. And those moments when you don't understand, when it's hard to sense the love of God, when it's hard to understand His purpose, moments where it looks like the bad guys are winning, you ever have days like that? You can comfort yourself with these words, My Father knows. The one who set the direction of my life long before I took my first breath, He knows. He knows. Say that with me. He knows. Think about this. Your identity, if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, your identity is either a son or a daughter of the Father who knows because He has written your story. Every person sitting in here today, every person that's ever lived or ever will live, God wrote your story before the foundation of the world. So everything that's coming, God already knows it. I don't know about you, but that brings a great deal of comfort to me. From As the song says, from life's first breath to final cry, Jesus commands my destiny. I don't know about you, but I, I like that. But I don't have to figure it out. Jesus has got it in control. He, he's moving this thing forward. And I just trust Him. Now here's the question I have for you. Do you believe this? It's up here, right? But sometimes it ain't here, right? Do you live like you believe this? Do you live like this is your real identity? Do you live like this when life is hard? Or is there a hole in your gospel? I'm your pastor... Sometimes there's big old holes in my gospel. You know what I have to do to get that hole to close up? Preach the gospel to myself. Husbands and wives, does this identity shape the way you respond to one another in those difficult times that every marriage has this side of eternity? Husbands and wives, do you hold to this identity when you're so hurt by something that the other has said or done to you that you want to respond by hurting them back? Do you lay hold of this identity when you've lost your job and you don't know what's going on, how you're going to pay your bills, you wonder what in the world is God doing? Do you hold on to this? Parents, do you lay hold of this identity when you're dealing with a strong-willed child who seems to be stubborn and unwilling to obey? Been there, done that. Do you lay hold of this identity when you feel alone in life because of the things that others are doing, which are things you can't do as a child of God? You feel isolated because you're a Christian, you're living for Him, and other people look at you funny? Do you believe that when your world is chaotic? Do you say to yourself, my world is messy, but I have security because I'm a child of God? Do you do that? Do you have identity amnesia? Have you forgotten who you are and who you belong to? Do you seek for security in places where it can't be found? Remember the theme... Of First Peter. Stand firm in the true grace of God. What kind of grace is it? Truth. I like truth, don't you? 
This is the key to having a proper view of suffering. When you face trials, you have a choice. You can assert yourself and complain about how unfair things are and look for the easy and quickest way out, which is kind of like what we do, right? Or you can submit to the sovereign hand of God knowing that He has everything under control. Again, we have that up here, right? But getting it down here is a different story. Let me illustrate this for you. You can respond to suffering and trials in your lives in one of two ways. You can be an egg or a potato. You ready? An egg goes into boiling water soft and it comes out how? Hard. A potato goes in hard and comes out soft. Ask yourself, am I responding to the trials God has sovereignly allowed into my life? Listen, whatever it is, whatever's going on, God allowed it. Am I submitting to God or am I resisting Him? If we submit to Jesus, He'll soften our hearts and He'll give us hope as we live in a fallen, hostile, difficult world. That's the application for the believer. But you may be here today and you say, I don't have that identity you're talking about. I don't know this Jesus you're talking about. Here's what I would say to you. Today's the day. Right here, right now, where you should confess that. You're not here by accident today. God divinely, sovereignly put you here today to hear this sermon, to hear God's Word. Today's the day. If you don't know Him, today's the day that you should confess that. Confess that you've lived your own way and cry out for God's grace and ask for His forgiveness based on the perfect life and the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's what you do if you don't know Christ. Let's pray.